Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week, while I'm exploring the highlights of Turin's food culture and its annual food festival, Buonissima, we're talking about the roots of Italian cuisine. Then the monks, they had all the skills because they were farmers, they were scientists, they were, you know, they, they, were, they were praying during the day, but also working a lot. And they had the skills to turn the cheese-making process into something more scientific and reliable. And so they started making better cheese. Julia Scarpaleggia began her food writing career as a blogger and photographer before becoming one of the most respected writers on Italian food. Her book, Cucina Povera, is all about her respect for the ingenuity of peasant cooking, which reveals the soul of Italian food at its best. It's about making the best of what you've got, but the Italians just say it so much better. So we say uh, cucina povera is the way we cook, we used to cook and we still cook in Italy. And it's the best representation of arte dell'arrangiarsi. That is uh, to do with what you got, to use what is left in your pantry, to use what is seasonal and local and turn this into great meals. That's cucina povera. I just love that term. Give it to us again. I'm not even going to pretend to say it. <laughs> Arte dell'arrangiarsi. Gorgeous. And it's the art of making do with what you've got. It's absolutely beautiful. And it's so much better than working with leftovers. <laughs> but actually, it has a rich tradition. It's it's about poverty. It's about waste. I do a lot of food writing retreats here. And Elizabeth Luard is our muse in residence at most of them. And of course, she was the one who really brought peasant cooking to our attention back in the 80s. And she tells us in the book how the Europeans have a very different relationship with peasant cookery skills. And it is the skills that gives them the respect. Tell us a little bit about that. Exactly. It's not, um, it is the way we cook. Even People that are not great cooks, think about my mother, for example, they have this way with food, the way of using leftovers, of respecting every single ingredient that I think is in our DNA. For example, my mom, again, she's not the best cook, but she has a bag with stale bread behind her kitchen door. And that's a staple of our cuisine. She can make uh, breadcrumbs with that. She can use that for stuffing vegetables or for stuffing a chicken. So it's the respect of the ingredients. And so the skill is respecting what you have. It is. I mean, I got home last night and I literally had nothing in the fridge. I had just a stale heel of, of some <laughs> sourdough bread and I picked up a broccoli on the way back. And I had half a <laughs> tin of black beans that I used on Saturday. So they were probably on the turn. But I, I did manage to make a Tuscan bean soup. I whizzed up those black beans, as mm-hmm. you told me to, uh, in your book. And I put the stale heel into the soup and I left it for about 10 minutes, mm-hmm. as you say. Okay, I know how to make soup. But I hadn't thought about whizzing up the black beans, for example. Mm-hmm. And then you add, well, you don't use black beans, you use cannellini beans. But uh, you can use any beans. And it is yes. the point. Uh, so there is some skill there, isn't there? That, that This is what your book is really all about, isn't it? Exactly. This, I'm so happy you said this because sometimes people say, I don't find this ingredient. It's not a problem because you are using the principles of cucina povera and you're using what you have in your pantry. This is exactly cucina povera. Use what you have. The first thing you have to do is to search your pantry, see what is left. And from there, you can start. And that's exactly the principle. These are the principles of Cucina Povera. This is where everything is beginning. Just give us a little bit of a history lesson. Why did the elite Italians 
respect that in the poor people because, you know, class division is something that is very dismissive, isn't it? But not in cooking. Yeah. Exactly. Um, of course, most of the cookery books we have, uh, from the old times, they were from rich people. So the elite, uh, the chefs cooking for big banquets, but still the poor people, they had to do with what they had. And we have this cuisine that is different in the cities and in the countryside, because in the cities, they would cook what was close to them. And most of the time it was what was left after butchering all the animals. While in the countryside, it was cooking uh, with what was seasonal and close to them. So vegetables, forage greens, and maybe a couple of eggs and stale bread. But this respect, it's for the leftovers. Even the, the elite would use leftovers. There are recipes to reuse leftovers because this was this incredible respect for food as, you know, starting point. And that was common on one side because it was considered you know, clever to reuse what was left. On the other side, it was the only way they could survive. I mean, it's interesting that you say that because in this industrialised food age, even though we have a cost of living crisis, we still have so much waste. So much yeah. is, is thrown away. Um, you know, there's that fantastic statistic that I come up with all the time that if waste were mm. a country, according to the UN, it would be the third largest country in the world. I mean, it yeah. is shocking. And certainly yeah. in terms of climate change, all the greenhouse gases, yeah. just appalling. But going back to what you were saying about the elite, why did the Italian elite respect the leftovers then? Why did they use the leftovers? Well, the, their grandness was in the banquets. Okay, but then the chefs, they had the way to reuse leftovers. I think it's because mainly we are... Um, uh, an agricultural land. So we are surrounded by the fields. And that's what you see from, from your windows. I mean, except you are in big cities. The farming is still so important now as it used to be. And that's why I think that's this respect for the product, for the produce. It's the connection actually with the land, isn't yeah. it? And I think that what industrialization has, has done for the, for the national cuisines is that, uh, it has severed that connection, certainly. Exactly. In, in this country. Um, let's talk about some of those ideas that you've, you've just raised. First of all, the slaughterhouse. This was mm -hmm. the central part of Cucina Paura for so many people and everything that grew out of that, that proximity to the slaughterhouse. So, um, let's start from, you know, look at the animal and there were like four quarters, the most important part of the animal. They were for the rich people, for the church, for the working class. And the fourth one was for the soldiers. And what was left? The fifth quarter. So something that was not wanted by anyone. The offal, uh, liver, uh, oxtail, everything, brain. So everything that was not appreciated was what was left for people working there next to the, to the slaughterhouse. And that's why I was saying the cucina povera of the cities is very different from the cucina povera of the countryside because what was available to people was different. And so they come with these incredible recipes that, of course, they use parts of the animals that nowadays we don't consider anymore, but they were 
affordable and they would give very good food to them. And a whole world grew up around the slaughterhouse, the Osteria, the Rattoria. Everybody wanted to eat this food. And so I suppose the the meaning of the offal was never in question. It was about beautiful food. It was about conviviality. It was about life. So the fact that we're kind of a bit squeamish about offal uh, would never have occurred to people, would it? Because it would have been this buzzy, fantastic community. I mean, is it still like that, for example, at Testaccio Market? Yeah, it is exactly like that, still like that. It's a little bit changing the culture. Uh, we don't consider those cuts anymore. And so, for example, if I think about the Florentine market, I used to go there 10 years ago and there were Italians queuing to buy those, you know, uh, forgotten pieces of meat. Now, most of the stalls are closed. They don't sell those parts anymore. Those left, they have immigrants queuing to buy, uh, again, those cuts. And I think this is just incredible because they are preserving our culture for Quinto Quarto, for offal, because maybe they still have the skills to cook those cuts of meat and they still have recipes to transform those cuts of meat into something delicious. So it's, you know, it's a never-ending process. And you talk about it as being street food. You say that you can go to Liguria or Milan or Venice yeah. and for five euros have an awful-based dish standing up. I mean, do tourists do this as well? Yes, or? yes. It's, you can see from the Italians, that's different. You don't have to cook that. So it's someone else cooking that for you. And so if you go to Florence for the Lampredotto stall, there's everyone, uh, tourists, school, um, children's, and then workers and old men, young people, because it's part of the culture is, you know, is their pride. The Lampredotto is their pride in Florence. I learned to appreciate Lampredotto just recently when I start to go to Florence and I fell in love because it's, it's lean, it's flavorful. You have to, you know, to, to, to understand how to eat the panino because it's dripping directly on your chin and on your clothes. <laughs> but it's, you know, cheap and delicious, really something you have to try. I'm just going to read a little bit from your book. Mm -hmm. Um, It's about the the local street vendors would also Mm -hmm. offer a tripe stew served hot with olive oil, salt and pepper and lemon juice. Um, And then in in Naples, a salad made of boiled bones, calf's head, pig's trotters and snout dressed with olive oil, parsley and lemon juice. And then bundles of calf's offal secured inside knotted intestines. I mean, (laughs) you know, is this? Still, the stuff that people eat on the streets of, of it- Italy. Yes, yes. I mean, not everyone, not every, not everywhere, but it's still there and it is still appreciated. It's a delicacy, actually. You go to these cities and you search for that because you know you're tasting the real flavor of the city with that. I mean, I wonder if there is something in here that is the root of our problem in Britain with, with the food, yeah. the lack of connection. Mm-hmm. I mean, the respect that you talk about is clear. You know, nobody's going to turn up their nose at a beautiful dish um, of offal on the street. But we would in Britain. I mean, there's no chance mm-hmm. that the poorest people would go and get these uh, these cuts in the butchers. They just don't. They go to the supermarket, they buy shrink-wrapped stuff that, you know, you don't even know what it is. And certainly you don't yeah. know where it comes from. I mean, what do you 
you think you know British food culture pretty well? <laughs> you know, you're a seasoned food writer. What do you think about the way that we deal with offal? Um, I actually, I never tried something uh, from your culture with offal. That's probably the answer. I never had the chance to try that. You wouldn't be able to find it. Exactly. Never had the chance to try that. I mean, you might find it in people's homes, eh. but you would never find it in street food. I mean, what do you think about our attitude? Uh, I think it needs a leap of faith. And whenever I have cooking classes and I have people here, I try to convince them at least to look at that. That's the first step. Look at that. And maybe it's a texture thing. Um, but I think when we cook something together, then, you know, you already have taken the first step. And so you are more willing to try that. It's difficult. It's difficult. During my cooking classes, rarely I get to eat to cook three puffer people, but I try every time when we are at the butcher, just to show them how it looks like, how beautiful, how fresh it is, how sustainable it would be to eat tribe. In that, my butcher says, we have one cow, and in this cow, there's one fillet, and then all the other cuts. So to be sustainable when you want to eat meat, you have to consider all the other cuts of the, of the cow. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's that connection with the whole of the animal. Let's talk about something that won't send my vegan listeners running for the hills. Let's talk about bread. <laughs> bread is something that you talk about a lot. It is something that is, we all, most of us always have a bit hanging around in, in, in the bread bin. And it is your first food moment. Um, Papa al pomodoro, tomato bread soup. Mm -hmm. Uh, why bread? And what is the role of it in Cucina Baba? Um, in the Tuscan cucina povera, bread is the staple ingredient, stale bread, because uh, our bread is usually made without salt, and so it's fresh for the first day, then it easily gets stale. So we have so many recipes that use stale bread as the main ingredient. So in our culture, we have panzanella, so a tomato bread salad, ribollita, where you use stale bread to give body to the soup, and papa al pomodoro. Tomato bread soup. It is actually my comfort food. Um, and it's, it has been in my family forever since I can remember. Um, and we have this story because my mom, she always tells me this story. She was alone with my great grandfather and he was a farmer, a typical Tuscan farmer. My mom is from San Gimignano and she considers herself a city girl because she's from San Gimignano. So she didn't know how to cook when she was newly married. Uh, she didn't know what papal pomodoro was. So her, my great-grandfather asked her to make papal pomodoro and she was like, and what it is papal pomodoro? So it was like, no, 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 cara, fammi qualcos'altro, <laughs> cook me something else because it wasn't, you know, ready to try something that was not papal pomodoro. And then my grandmother, she gave me her recipe and it's a recipe from Siena. So it's a pale papal pomodoro with just a few pieces of tomatoes and fresh basil, something you make during the summer. Then I start to research the recipe and I learned the recipe from Firenze, from, from Florence. It's red and bright because often it's made with canned tomatoes. And then eventually I came to my own recipe that just like we live in between Siena and Florence, this recipe sits in between the recipes of Siena and Florence. So it's not as bright as the papal pomodoro from Florence. It's not as pale as the one from, Tass from Siena. It's my papal pomodoro. And when I uh, cooked that and gave it to my grandmother and she said, now you know how to cook. <laughs> that was a big moment for me because I changed her recipe and she appreciated that. 
So that was a very big moment for me. Yeah. <laughs> and what do you think she meant by that? Was it the, uh, what we were talking about before, having those basic rules and then knowing how to play with them? I think it was, it was actually good. <laughs> I have to say this myself. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it tasted great. <laughs> but what she meant by that was it, pretty much what you're trying to do in the book, isn't it? Which exactly. is give you the skills, give us the skills so that we can then play with exactly. them. Exactly. So I used the same ingredients, stale bread and tomatoes. And with that, I came out with another recipe that was still respecting the same principle, but that was my recipe. And she loved that. And that was a very, you know, big moment for us. Yeah. The, the, your the second food moment is about your mum, who you say is a terrible cook. And, but it is her minestrone. Um, it may have come from a bag in the freezer, but it was her bag in the freezer. <laughs> yeah. Her signature was the burnt onion. Because <laughs> again, she now she's better in cooking, I have to say this, but I didn't learn how to cook from her. I learned how to feed people and how to make people feel loved with food, thanks to her. These, these minestrone, she would make the minestrone while she was doing 100 different things. And so she would slice the onion, put the onion on high flame with olive oil in a pot, and forget about that. So always the onion would burn. Always. She still, she still does this. And then she would pour the frozen minestrone on top of the burnt onion and just hear this sound from the kitchen and then pour some water and cook that. Still, and for me, this is still the best minestrone I have. It's a hair minestrone is my favorite minestrone. And of course, then I learned to make minestrone chopping all the single vegetables. And when I was dating Tommaso, my husband, he's from, from Florence. I used to spend part time of the week uh, in Florence. I would go to Florentine markets and there, there was this guy at the vegetable stall and he was explaining how to make a creamy minestrone. I remember exactly the moment and it was like, you have either to mash a potato, add beans or a spoonful of pesto. Um, it was like so simple, so clever, seasonal vegetables, a few things you can add and you have an incredible minestrone. So now like when I want to feel like a grown up, I make my own minestrone, I chop all the vegetables. When I'm in a hurry and when I have like to feed my daughter, that's frozen minestrone from the bag. That's not nice recipe. That's not nice recipe. <laughs> <laughs> Making pasta, your third food moment, orecchiette, um, it feels to, to British people that you only make pasta when you've got massive time. It feels like one of those non-skills that, you know, you do if you're not going out to work. But actually, it's super, super easy, isn't it? And so cheap. Yes. Tell us about making arachiete, yeah, which must so be the most fun of all it pasta is. to make. Cause it is. You're not drying it everywhere. You're just making little ears. Exactly. And I love the dough. The dough is the super simple semolina flour and water, another poor vegan recipe because it's just flour and water, no eggs. And I learned this in Salento. Again, Tommaso's family, his mom, she was from Salento, from the south of Italy. Uh, she passed away a couple of years ago and I didn't manage to learn her recipes. Uh, so that's something I've always wanted to do. Learn the typical recipes of Salento, to have them in the family, to pass them to my daughter. So luckily, Tommaso's um, uncle is a very good cook and he's introducing me to many recipes from Salento, but also his aunt. She had this friend a couple of years ago. She invited all of us 
in our house in Salento, we start making orecchiette in the afternoon. And it was super fun. They were very strict because I was trying. Mm, this looks quite good. No, 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 it's broken. Try again. And I would try again. No, 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 it's wrong. Try it again. It's not the right movement. It's not. And it's really a memory. It's in your hands. And once you start making them and you start forgetting about your mo- movements, but just talking with them, it becomes so simple, so automatic. And yeah, this is one of my best memories. And after that, that afternoon, Tommaso's aunt, she gave me Tommaso's nonna's knife because you, you use, you know, sp- special knife to make orecchiette. And the orecchiette made with that knife are the best orecchiette. And I treasure this knife. It's like a, a treasure for the family. So I really, I'm really proud to, to be the owner of that knife now. Yeah. It's another example of the respect for Cucina Povera and cooking traditions and relationship with food in yeah. that you pass these skills down to your children. Yeah. Are you already teaching your three-year-old daughter how to make orecchiette? Uh, orecchiette, not yet. We're making pancakes, <laughs> pancakes at the moment, baked apples, so very simple things. But next thing will be the pasta because she loves to eat pasta. Yeah. And it, it isn't just the cooking skills. It's the sitting around the table. It's yeah. the talking about food. It's the imbuing of that fantastic love of, of yeah. food that, however, I know that Italy is going through its own junk foodification as we all are. And, you know, you have all sorts of issues of that in schools. I know it's really changing very quickly. But would you say that the Italian cuisine is, is still safe? That it is still, uh, as well respected as it has been? Uh, on the surface, yes, because everyone, when we talk about Italian cuisine, is the best in the world, something that, you know, I don't agree. It's a very good cuisine, you know. Uh, but then most of the traditional recipes are forgotten. We search for new things, new ingredients, new techniques. But working on this book, I realized how most of our traditional recipes are modern. They use modern techniques. They use a modern approach to food, like the sustainable approach, the seasonality. And so I think we should really look at what was traditional and remember how to be respectful to, for, for the food and ingredients. And is that why you've spent so much time in this book, keeping going, going back to the traditions, where stuff comes from? I mean, the, yeah. your final food moment is, uh, is the cheese and egg balls stewed in tomato sauce. But what I really loved about it was the, the chapter on where the dairy industry came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it wasn't even an industry. It came from the monks in the Middle Ages. Tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah, so think about cheese, first of all, as I produce. Cheese was considered food for the poor people, for those who couldn't afford something else, for the pilgrims, for those living in the mountains, so remote uh, mountains, the only thing they could eat was their cheese. It was for the smell, it was for the taste, it was something considered a little bit weird and funky. Then the monks, they had all the skills because they were uh, farmers, they were scientists, they were, you know, they, they were praying during the day, but also working a lot. And they had the skills to turn the cheese making process into something more scientific and reliable. And so they started making better cheese. And cheese was important because they had so many fasting days through the year that they needed something different from meat to eat. And that's how they introduced cheese as one of the ingredients, one of the proteins you could have during your fasting days. And that's how the cheese 
pass from being just for the poor people to be appreciated by the elites as well, because there was something good that they could eat during the fasting days. And so thanks to the monks, now we have a good production of cheese all over Italy that really represents every single region, the smells of the region, the mountains or the hills, the typical animals, it can be cows or goats or sheep. It really represents the specifically regions of every over of Italy. Yeah. It's so interesting that story because you say that initially before the monks created this 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 whole new world of dairy, it was the fermented funky smell mm-hmm. of of cheese that wasn't socially acceptable yeah. in the elite. Exactly. And yet that was transformed exactly. by the scientific approach, but I presume again the respect of the yeah. religious order. Was that what gave it it its prestige exactly exactly because they were not the poor people eating the cheese but they were the monks and they had a social status and so associating the cheese to their social status to the church that's how it was then appreciated and introduced also to the elite banquets but your fourth food moment the cheese and egg balls stewed in tomato sauce is absolutely back to cucina povera tell us tell us about that yeah so um we work on cucina povera during the several lockdowns of Italy. I was first pregnant, then I had a newly born and toddler. So all our plans to travel through Italy to taste recipes, visit restaurants, we just had to forget about them. So I had to rely on technology and cookbooks. All the traditional cookbooks of the Italian cuisine, but also all the friends from all over Italy, from different regions that were very um, they were there for me, like on WhatsApp and Zoom to s- explain me how to cook something or how to solve a problem or which was the best bread to make, um, a stuffing or canederli. And one of my friends, um, Giulia, we have the same name from Abruzzo, Giulia Scappaticcio. She, she spent a whole afternoon cooking on Zoom with her uh, mother-in-law and they were trying to teach me the traditional recipes of Abruzzo. Uh, like these pallotte cashoyova, so they're like balls made with stale bread and whatever cheese was left. And then you stew them in tomato sauce and first you fry them and they have to dance in the oil. And I was so excited when I saw my balls dancing in the oil, just like their balls on the other side of the computer. So that was a great moment because really thanks to technology, we managed to save or work on traditional old recipes and so new and old together in this book i mean it's amazing what has happened people are doing cook-alongs all the time now they're doing little history lessons with cook-alongs with recipes over zoom uh people are so fascinated by the roots uh, of cookery i I think that you know we'll just get more and more fascinated but also more skilled up it's really interesting because every year i go to turin uh, in October to Buenissima, which is a celebration of Turin's food. And I eat the most incredible food. Mm. Um, often it's Michelin starred, but often it's, you know, Cucina Povera as well. But, yeah. but what I've noticed is that while the very best food in Britain is about story. It's about provenance. It's mm-hmm. about the producers. You know, you might have a little story about that on the menu. You'll certainly be told by, uh, yeah. by the waiter, uh, about that. Doesn't happen in Turin. And it feels to me that it's so taken for granted. It, of course, it's yeah. beautifully sourced. Of course, there's a massive story yeah. about the, the truffles or, or whatever. They don't even need to say it. There's, 
they play with it. There's an art about it that transcends this kind of need to tell the story that we have. Do you do, do you recognize that? So my first encounter with food writing, I like to tell this story, was 13 years ago in a farm to table restaurant in Manchester. I was there for work. I was it was not my blog. I was not a food writer at the moment, not writing books. I was there for olive oil. I was on my own having dinner at this restaurant and I still remember their menu. Every single word was crafted and there was the origin of the ingredients and the farm connected. I was like, I still have goosebumps when I think about this because I kept that menu in my books for years and I would still read that. And there was nothing like that in Italy at that time. So like uh, 14, 15 years ago, maybe we use that approach, but we don't explain it. It's the same thing about food writing. We don't have uh, important food writers, at least the 10 years ago, now there are food writers, but it's because we give food for granted. It's something that we have here. We are, we talk about food every day, but it's not literature for us. And it's the same approach when it comes to ingredients, when it comes to food, we give things for granted and we have to learn to appreciate this and to tell about this and write about this because it's so fascinating. So that, um, yeah, there's a big difference. And I think we, we are working on that. We are working on that. <laughs> are you saying, Julia, that you could learn from British food writers? Absolutely. <laughs> I learned from British food writers. When I, when I started studying about food writing, there was no one in Italy writing about food writing or writing good food writing. So not the theory, not the actual food writing to read. That's why I'm so in love with English as a language because it really gave me all the instruments, all the tools to write about food. There's nothing like this in Italian, because still food is so given for granted. Now, of, of course, now there are good food writers, but it's still new. It's still something new, not with decades of history as you have in Great Britain, uh, centuries of history. So yeah, I learned a lot. <laughs> Who do you read, Julia? Ah, oh, it's really British food writers. I love Nigel Slater. <laughs> I'll give you an example. It is uh, the Christmas Chronicles. It is writing about Panforte, so something I know very well. It's the Christmas cake from Siena, and he describes Panforte, and he says it's like chewing on a medieval manuscript. Beautiful. We don't know how to say something like this. We have to learn. And I think it's the way he uses his word is like poetry for me. And I love his recipes because I often have all the ingredients required to make them. So they always work. And the way he describes the recipe, the food, the history is just poetry for me. I really love him, really. Thanks for listening. Do rate and review the podcast if you like it over on Apple Podcasts and then head to my Substack to hear why Julia is such a sucker for British food writing.